Cool. As you make your way to your chairs, uh, some of you, I will introduce our uh, next speakers. It's Eusebius Mekaiser from uh, 702. He's a presenter at 702, as well as um, the program manager at 702, Alastair Tierling-Smith. Um, to answer your question, which will also be illuminating for the audience as well, when it comes to a question and answer, which will be very insightful because the subject matter is creative relationships, um, inclusive of questions, it will end at quarter past four, and exclusive, uh, please, about 20 minutes or 30 minutes odd, because this is a very inquisitive audience. Um, it will be a dialogue, just to give you a, for the format on how it's going to proceed between Eusebius as well as Alistair. Um, here and there, I'm, I'm assuming towards the end, we can then ask questions. Um, it, will be, it should be interesting. Cool. Thank you. Testing, one, two. Good afternoon, everyone. Hello. Okay, I can't see people. I'm going to sit on this chair. Thanks so much for coming to this session, and thank you to the organizers for inviting myself and um, also Alistair Teeling-Smith, who is my program manager at 702. Hello. <laughs> um, so the way we're going to proceed is... I'm going to say a little bit about my relationship with Alistair. As you know from the program, the heart of this conversation is the creative relationship between a presenter and, say, program manager, which is a very interesting one. Um, so I will make some remarks about the genesis of my relationship with him. He's going to talk a little bit thereafter about strategically where 702 is at. And in terms of 702's positionality, what does that mean a, for hiring someone as Chachrach as Eusebius. And secondly, what does it mean for his relationship creatively with me as the person who has to manage me? After that, I'm going to give you some practical examples of how that relationship creatively plays out on a day-to-day -day basis between me and Alistair. He will fill in one or two interesting consequences of that as well. And then we'll open up to the floor after about 20, 25 minutes max. Okay, so that's how we're going to proceed. So program managers, at least the good ones, are unsung heroes in our industry, which is just as true, of course, of producers who often are behind the scenes and do the legwork. And then we know the famous voice or face, but we don't often give credit where it's due in terms of the entire teams. And when we do give credit to the entire team, we usually by that mean the content producers. We often leave out the technical producers, who from a psychological point of view are actually far more important to me once I'm on air than someone who's behind a screen. And then the other person that we often leave out when we, in those rare moments, do acknowledge that it's a team effort is in fact the program manager who is very important uh, in terms of the strategic direction of the show and also over the long term helping you to think as a presenter about how you position yourself in terms of your own career. Um, I've known Alistair now for at least um, since 2008. That's the first time that I knocked at 702's doors. And since then, we've had a very interesting relationship. I'm sure there are many different ways to have productive relationships set up creatively between presenters and um, and program managers, but as these relationships go, 
I certainly don't think, and I know this is being recorded, but I don't think I can be contradicted by any of my colleagues at 702, I don't think you will find a richer and a more uncomplicated relationship either at 702 and probably in the industry than the one that I have with Alistair. We're not friends, which I'll come back to later if you want to ask about that, not because I don't like him, um, but we have deep mutual respect and that is the fundamental basis for a creative relationship to succeed. I trust him when I need to check in with him, and I'll give examples later. I know that the advice I will get is on the basis of someone who takes a deep interest in my own career, quite apart from his own KPIs, uh, in terms of having to manage me from the point of view of what the station manager and what the number crunch is wanting to do with my show. And that mutual respect has been something that has been the foundation of my creative and strategic relationship with Alistair over the years. In fact, even when I left 702 and I went to Power 98.7, we were still chatting quite a lot. After I left Power 98.7, before I went back to 702, where I've now been for two years uh, back, back at 702 in the mid-morning slot, um, I've constantly checked in with Alistair about where we are at strategically as a talk radio component of, of radio and also what my own plans are for coming back on air. So what I want to say at this stage, and I'm going to come back to the nuts and bolts after Alistair has spoken a little bit, is that fundamentally, beyond the nuts and bolts and the practical tips and examples that I'm going to explore for, for how he has been absolutely pivotal to my development and my execution of my duties on air, but fundamentally, I think Alistair will agree with me, there's deep mutual respect that we have for one another's skill set. And that really is the reason why um, Alistair is one of three people in the industry that I credit uh, in terms of my own career progression. One is an Australian consultant that we use at Prime Media. I'm delighted that she's back with our company. And the other person is my former boss and friend, uh, Given Mkari, who has a creative understanding second to none in the industry when it comes to technique. So between, between Given Mkari and Alistair, those are the two people that have been the most pivotal to my development from a creative point of view. And I'm going to give you some evidence for that position uh, in a couple of minutes. Okay. Um, yes, Alistair's Eusebius said. Thanks for those words, Eusebius. It's actually really odd to be sitting here in front of all of you hearing those words from Eusebius. So, there's no surprises, by the way, of what he said, but it's quite odd I guess, sharing that with, with, with many of you. And, and some of you I know quite well, but, but many of you I don't know. Um, so let me speak a bit from my experience, my side. Yes, 10 years ago, gosh. Um, the first time I came across Eusebius was an article in the Business Day, E.M. McKaiser, or Eusebius McKaiser. And I remember reading this article and thinking, wow, that's pretty interesting. And cost aside, as one does. Um, uh, and that's the first time I noticed you. And then... Quite soon afterwards, you got in contact with us, and I guess often good talent finds us. I mean, that sounds a little bit arrogant, but Eusebius really did find 702 and made a bit of a nuisance of himself until we put him on the radio. And listen, he was full of self-confidence, um, having listened to BBC, Tim Sebastian, do you remember that, mentioning Tim Sebastian and others, and feeling you could do a good job. And so we've worked together, cut a long story short, we've worked together, as you see, said, over many years. 702 now is in a very different position to it was 10 years ago. 
Um, we've always been a bit of a, I guess, an ANC language, a broad church. In other words, trying to appeal to a range of different people. It's a commercial station targeting LSM 8 to 10. Our advertisers care about an audience with money. In the old days, it was a white audience. That's changed. Um, and I guess, hence, 702's st strategic position has changed as well over the years. I guess 15 years ago, uh, what, about a quarter of the audience were black, a third was black. It's now changed uh, substantially. Um, and that's partly market-driven. Market um, and we're very different from the Jenny Chris Williams, David O'Sullivan, John Robbie radio station that we were some years ago. <clears throat> um, we'll speak a bit later on about Eusebius himself, but I just want to say a couple of things just strategically where we are as a moment, uh, where the station is at the moment. What's crucial for us in this new cycle is that we are a trusted brand with people like Eusebius and others that explain the news. Presenters explain why they're doing things on air. They also, we are also part of the news cycle. That's what differentiates ourselves from podcasts, by the way. In other words, we're time and space specific. In other words, if you're listening to 702, you will know what's happening in the world. And even if Eusebius is speaking about explaining what's happening at ESCOM, if something else happens, the, the, the program would be interrupted. And thirdly, we're about the relationship with the audience. Um, and this is not rocket science, by the way. It's probably what all of you are involved with and what you do. But I want to just, before I hand back to you, Eusebius, just speak a little bit about my role as a program manager. And I have pretty strong views about this. My background as a producer, I've worked at 702 for too long, probably, and other places. Um, but as a producer, so I sort of understand what happens behind the scenes. And working with people like Eusebius, Reedy, Bongani, John Robbie, whoever, is a uh, they have very particular pressures that many of us don't have. In other words, I can have a bad day at work, and it's fine. I make a mistake. I can tear a piece of paper and throw it in the dustbin. Eusebius has a bad day in the office, and Gauteng knows. Um, and that pressure, by the way, has increased over the years. So John Robbie would have been on for three hours a day and then go home to his wife and do whatever he did. But the argument now is the presenters really are, I guess, brands or people in the public place 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year. In other words, no longer three hours of a show. But, and you see this as an excellent example of using platforms like Twitter, Facebook, uh, writing, called Mail and Guardian and so on. And most of our presenters are like that. So the conversation is actually happening 24-7. Even when he's sleeping, there can be issues that people are engaging with him on. So the pressures are tremendous on, on hosts. And therefore, my role as a program manager is, I guess, an acknowledgement of that. I'm very aware of my presence on Eusebius and his team. I will never walk, very rarely even walk past the studio because that's that can have, uh, it might just be showing people or walking somewhere, but I'd rather walk away from the studio or, or around the studio. I would certainly never interact with Eusebius when he is on air um, and say, why did you take that call? Why did you cut off the caller? If there's a conversation to be had, it would happen at a different time. So it's just, I guess, an awareness of the pressures of being a, a talent, frankly. 
um, that those of us who not in that same public way, um, I've seen in the past program managers going into a studio uh, and reprimanding talent during a spot break. How dare you do this? <laughs> you can imagine what happens when you come to the end of the spot break. There's no radio program because there's a roaring row in the studio. The technical producer pops on a song. There's radio, or not radio, silence because there's music playing in the background. But you can't have a creative relationship like that. Yeah. So I guess maybe that's enough for me, you see, because I don't have the gift of the gab. You do, and I know your questions will probably be way more interesting than... Then, uh, and will point us in the right direction, but perhaps you want to take over now. No, not really. I mean, I think, I think you really are the, the, the person here with the incredible uh, technical know-how, how to do radio. Um, and it's up to us as presenters to listen to our, to our managers. And I mean, we're not being politically correct here. Um, if I didn't respect someone, I wouldn't work with them. I would go to the station manager and say, no, I don't want to be managed by Alistair. So, in a sense, I... I I'm utterly sincere when I say that I've learned a lot from Alistair creatively. And small little things that, that seemingly um, should be part of a Radio 101 brochure, but they make a massive difference to the sound and, and how you come across to the public. So I'm going to give a couple of examples. Alistair will give a couple of examples, and we'll have a discussion because I'm not quite sure why you are here today, so I'm not quite sure what's foremost on your mind. So I want to keep it practical. There are two buckets of stuff that I get from Alistair as a, as, as a program manager. The first is strategic stuff, but it's still practical, and then the other is technique stuff that is a little bit more in terms of the nuts and bolts. And I'll give you a sample from both. And, and he's got plenty of his own examples, right? So at the strategic level... Alistair and I are constantly self-examining what is the purpose of the Eusebius MacKaiser show. As a station, we grapple with and arguably haven't settled the question of what the purpose of 702 in contemporary South African life is. And it's, it's a really fascinating, creative and strategic question. And it's a difficult one because every single person wants a piece of 702. Um, in fact, one of, my, one of my favorite insights about 702 is crypt notes from Alistair himself, who would have said that 10 years ago, even though we had a diverse listenership, more than our detractors who would acknowledge, that there was a sense in which, a bit like our relationship as black people with former Model C schools, there was a sense in which black people who listen to 702, just like Afrikaans white people, you know that you're a visitor, but you're not at home. 2018, it's an interesting creative challenge for us because suddenly... Everyone wants 702 to affirm their beliefs, their worldview, their politics. And that gives a unique kind of pressure that we have that my brilliant predecessors uh, didn't have when 702 had a more homogenous identity many, many years ago. So what does that mean for me and Alistair creatively? It means that we are constantly, at least once every two, three months, we have a massive existential crisis. What is the point of the show? Our current description would be something like, we create meaning, we explain stuff, and we frame debates. What does that then mean practically? We then have to further disaggregate that kind of sloganeering because we have to operationalize that. Then we will have a bun fight about what is the extent to which you will unapologetically be yourself or will you just be a facilitator? And it's a tug and ward, and it's a creative process. And I think on that one, for example, we have accepted that you cannot undo Eusebius's relentless um, 
self-examination and honesty. I mean, everyone who listens to my show for five minutes will know I'm unapologetic about being a liberal, liberal egalitarian, and openly gay. And there's something very weird about an overconfident colored guy, first generation graduate in his family, coming onto a platform like 702, where you wouldn't traditionally expect to hear a Karima Brown or Eusebius McIsaac. So it's weird. It's weird for white listeners. It's weird for black African listeners. And by the way, it's also weird for many colored listeners. Many of our colored listeners on the Cape Flats don't know what to do with someone who sounds, well, not doesn't quite sound like them, um, who is one of their own that, that seems to be a representation of what one might yet become. So I'm a very complicated creature from a signature point of view for 702. And that's the kind of creativity where, where I check in with Alistair and I say, Alistair, what is our purpose? Where do I fit in here? Um, and it's a really interesting, permanently ongoing conversation. And then in terms of the practical stuff, especially for, for young people in the room who, who are interested in radio, <laughs> You know, it's, it's amazing what a different small little things can do. There's one small example. I, I'm a debater by training. I've, I'm a competitive debating in school, university. I've been a world master's champ, a national South African champ. That's not always a cool thing in a country where not everyone has the gift to articulate their thoughts concisely. Alistair will share with you an example of a technique that he's given me to help us deal with perceptions that you see best as a know-it-all and he always wants to have the last word. But I also run to him about other crises that I have which the public can't see because all they hear is a performance of confidence on the air. Many years ago, for example, when MasterChef happened, I remember I was doing talk at nine and there was a second show that I hosted on 702 and um, I landed in like complete crap with many of our listeners because it was five minutes before the results were going to be announced on television of who the winner was going to be and I announced who the winner was going to be before it was announced. And I completely guessed. I actually didn't know who it was going to be, right? So it was just a, a fluke that I got it right. The next couple of days, all over the star, there were the proverbial letters to the editor, uh, just people mortally pissed off at me having been unprofessional leaking results, not knowing that actually I just guessed right. Now, that might seem like a small thing, but precisely because of technology, we can't switch off and unsee things about ourselves as creatives. I go to Alistair, and Alistair has to play shrink, and we have to then also discuss how do you manage this? How do you manage the Twitter storm? Uh, what does this mean? Am I going to be in trouble with the station manager? Uh, do we need to proactively speak to the station manager? Are you going to do it? What does this mean for my quote-unquote brand? And he helps me to think through that stuff, and I then, I then continue. So that, that's one small example, but a very important one. I came, <laughs> I came across an hilarious email between me and Alistair from nine years ago, and this is the kind of, the kind of crap that, um, unfortunately, program managers have to deal with. His job is also not a three-hour job. He might go home at five o'clock, but he has to listen to, quote-unquote, talent the whole time because one moment that goes awry on air, it will come back to bite him. And I came across, and I do not even know what the context is, an email I had sent Alistair probably at about half past 11 at night, saying, Alistair, I'm not getting any calls. I'm not sure what to do. I have had this discussion for the last 30 minutes about anal sex, and no one is biting, right? <laughs> and I'm like, why on earth did I send that? And as you can hear, he's incredibly, incredibly polite and wrote back um, an email to me while I was still on air 
um, how to how to handle that particular radio silence because as much as I love my voice, the soliloquy is something that um, no one wants because it's supposed to be a dialogue that you're facilitating. A last example is slightly less precise, but it's actually incredibly important. When I returned to 702, it was after my lurch to the left. Uh, when I left 702, I wasn't very woke. After Power 98.7, I was very woke. And then I wrote Run, Races, Run. So they knew what they were in for. After John Robbie, even after my good friend Reedy Clubby had left, they knew that there was a risk getting Eusebius with my left-wing politics back onto 702. On the one hand, you signal to the market, okay, 702 takes seriously, that shit is happening in the country and you better be on message. On the other hand, you also know that radio is a habit and some people listen to you in their homes, which means that you are literally in their home. So when you are telling someone off about unearned privileges as a white person, for example, you're not having that conversation at VITS in a detached manner like we are now. This space doesn't belong to you, it doesn't belong to me. You're not entitled to feel comfortable in this space. But when you are sitting in your own home and you hear the voice of a presenter, you are experiencing it as that person having knocked at your door, come into your own space and tell you off. And the first couple of months when I was back filling in for Reedy while she was on maternity, we had to deal with particularly our older white listeners on Cape Talk just being incredibly upset at Eusebius Mackay's politics. And again, what is the role of, of my manager? Him and I had to constantly, constantly think creatively. Is there a way to keep you authentic and not lose listeners? And it's the closest Alice and I have come to disagreeing. Um, but even then, we realized that you need at least three bits of data points in terms of what the market says before you have a trend. So you can't get overly excited when you get one bit of feedback on day one when you're trying something new in terms of a strategic repositioning of, 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 of a station or a particular slot on a station. I'm going to end here in a second. Um, but in that particular example, it was hard for us because just as I can get trolled for, for being myself, he has to feel a shitload of comments on the 702 and Cape Talk comment line and people demanding to speak to Eusebius Mackay's manager. He gets a lot of abuse as do my producers. But one of the beautiful things that come out of it is that it means that him and I also have to sit down at least once every three, four months and say to ourselves, do we cut our losses if there is a little bit of a flight of listenership because there might be an upside in terms of where the country is headed from a demographic point of view, or is there a way in terms of technique that you don't have to come across as if you are obliterating someone else who sees things differently to you without necessarily a former listener of your show on Power FM saying, oh, now that you're back at 702, you're no longer brave. So that's the kind of complication that him and I have to wrestle with. Yeah, and that's... I really, part of my job description, I guess, is to protect talent broadly, protect Eusebius. So any organization, commercial station, public broadcast, we have stakeholders. We have people on the board, we have shareholders, we have advertisers, we have listeners. They're all stake, st stakeholders and they're all important, obviously. Um, but I've got to create the space. If we're brave enough to take on someone, no, that, let me take, cross out that word brave. But if you take out, out a Eusebius and put him on your radio station, you've got to give him the space to flourish creatively. Um, so therefore, it's my job to make sure that Eusebius is given that environment where he can flourish. So if there's someone on the board that doesn't like Eusebius, for whatever reason, 
that's that person's problem. Of course, it becomes my problem. I have to manage that, but it can't be Eusebius's problem. Likewise, advertisers. If um, so-and-so advertiser doesn't like what Eusebius stands for, we have to manage that and protect you from... And likewise, listeners. You're right, the older white, whiter listeners struggled with you for a bit. Um, I fielded many of those calls, and sometimes it's actually quite useful just to listen to what people are saying, even though you don't respect and dismiss, and you'd want to dismiss their views and swear at them for being racist, to be frank. Um, but it resulted in a good conversation with us in Eusebius, because people were saying to me, we don't like Eusebius. Okay, it's fine. But I still want those people listening to Eusebius. I don't want just fans listening to Eusebius. So how can we get people who don't like Eusebius listen to Eusebius? So I used to interrogate them, why don't you like Eusebius? Well, because he's gay, he's colored, he's this, he's that, whatever. That's fine, but, but, but why don't you... Because he, because he cuts people off and doesn't give people a chance to give their point of view, which results in a very interesting conversation with us, uh, between the two of us. It's, okay, it's fine, Eusebius. Uh, you're a skilled debater. You've got the world championship honors, and you've debated and what have you. So you're always in a much more powerful position than the caller, Plus, you've got the platform. Um, you don't have to always win the debate as you used to when you were a debating champion. You don't have to win. In the court of public opinion, uh, the listeners will decide. So if little Doris from Blair Gowrie calls in and objects to something that you say, you can take her on, sure, but end the call by thanking Doris and let Doris have her say, give Doris the time, and then thank Doris. You don't have to beat her up on air completely. You don't have to um, kick her head in, metaphorically speaking, and you don't have to cut her off and then have the last word. So you see, these were some of the conversations we had, and I think... And, and you know what? It's a, it's a beautiful psychological thing for... for especially for, for young radio practitioners who are in the room. It's the t there's an equivalent of this in TV. So when I came back, and Alistair disabused me of this notion, when I came back from England, I was obsessed with Jeremy Paxman. He was my gold standard of how to do interviews. South Africa's not ready for Jeremy Paxman. We're hardly ready for a version of Stephen Secker because we've got an ach-shame culture. So what do you do in that context? Well, Alistair taught me and I'm, I'm, doing, I'm now not doing it in this little exchange, to not have the last say. So if you listen to my show on the open line, people have an interesting response very often to us now in terms of what the market tells us. They will say things like, um, I really don't like that guy, but they still listen. So if you want to know from a technical point of view, why do people listen to him, but they claim not to like him? I mean, after all, there's nothing wrong with classic FM, right? or Kaya, so why are you choosing to subject yourself to him? And the reason is that, and this is my sort of like little cheat insight for, for, for young broadcasters, people will say things about what they want, but it's not necessarily what they actually want. So people will, will, will think that they, they want you to, to, to agree with them and to affirm what they have to say, but actually I think that the average South African just wants to be heard. And so what does that mean for me from a technique point of view? And Alistair asked an Australian consultant to, to check 
whether the perceptions of listeners are empirically true. And it turns out that listeners' perceptions of me are empirically not true. There are two things that I've done differently because of what Alistair has coached me. Firstly, among all of my colleagues, including the ones who are 10 times nicer than me, which basically means all of them, maybe barring Karima Brown, um, the average listener speaks more on my show than any other show in 702. And then compared to 10 years ago when I started, I will now have the last, say, about 80% fewer times than I, than I used to. So I'll always say, Alistair, you can have the last say. And you, you know why? And then the person walks away going, fuck, that guy really, like, he just didn't hear me about initiation schools. But you're still going to tune in the next day. Because actually, you have a dis discombobulated experience of, of, of Eusebius. On the one hand, you were fully heard because he didn't interrupt you. He's famous for saying we don't interrupt each other on the open line. So if you don't interrupt someone, they feel fully heard. But the reason why people still have feelings that are weird that they can't make up their minds about is because we also want something that we're not entitled to. And here I don't compromise, and Alistair knows. People want you to say, yeah, you are right. So now you have to wrestle with two conflicting feelings, one positive, one jarring. The jarring feeling is the host didn't say that they agree with, the, with your worldview. But the positive feeling is that you got three minutes. Azania is a much nicer human being than me. I think there's a perfect time she's, to... She's not going to give you three minutes to speak. She'll give you 90 seconds. But let me, let me just finish the thought. Yes, but, sure. but even though she will give you 90 seconds, psychologically it's quite interesting because she's not necessarily going to tell you she disagrees sharply with the content of your 90 seconds. You will have the perception that is empirically false that she heard you for a longer period of time. The secret lies in empirical evidence and saying what you want and who cares if they hate you, right? Not really. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being uh, quite candid and generous and lifting the veil of the dynamics between your relationship. It was really most insightful and really informative. Um, I'd like to invite questions on, on the floor, please. The first. Okay, I'll take three. Cool. Um, so you... You talk about allowing the listener to get the, the last word or the last say. And have you ever had a moment on air where the listener has given you, because I know you like to have the last word, and I, maybe that's one of the things that you've now changed, instead of just sort of cutting them off and giving your opinion. Have you ever had a moment where you've had a caller on the air that's had such a good, strong argument, and for the sake of your brand and the radio station, and you, you know they're wrong, but you allow them to win the argument? So rather than just letting them say what they want to say, allowing them purposefully to win the argument. No, no, definitely not. No, absolutely not. No, I'll tell you why. Uh, no, it's not about debating. If you, the, the quickest way to ruin a radio career anywhere in the world, if you, if you remember nothing else from this discussion, it is that inauthenticity will be sniffed out by the public instantly. The only thing that radio listeners hate more than talk show hosts with whose viewpoints they disagree are talk show hosts who are gaming. And if you game, but you don't say anything disagreeable, you will have low ratings because there's nothing the public hates more than insincerity. If someone is inoffensive but insincere, they won't have a radio career, which is why so many of us were addicted to Gareth Cliff for years, even though we find his politics disagreeable, because the one thing that he had that is an absolutely compulsory trait in a successful broadcasting career, and all my colleagues who were successful for years, like Jenny Chris Williams, had it in abundance, is complete and utter authenticity. 
Agreed. What you see here is what you get on the radio. <laughs> and that's why we're all fangirls out here. Um, just to comment as a fangirl is, is you, you're, you're compelling. I would like to listen to music. I would like to sing. I would like, and, and there I find myself back listening to you. But as a, as a fellow intellectual to a degree, you, you, you're incredibly intelligent, but yet you, you get the common man, and I'm not trying to condescend to the market, but the question then I have for you in your combativeness is, are you changing the audience? I mean, yes, 702 can say, yes, we want more black listeners, but are you not in yourself, both of you, actually transforming from the very fact that you are a gay black man on a previously white station? What's your opinion of that? I think I'd love Alistair to comment because Alistair's observed me over so many, many years. I get a lot from my listeners and I get a lot from, from radio. Ten years ago, because I'm an agnostic bordering on atheism, I would never have done an interview with someone like Cabello yesterday where I sincerely asked the guy ten minutes before the end of the, of the interview, can we talk about how your relationship with God has really enabled you to dig deep in how you are dealing with your sobriety? Now please, if you'd ask me as an undergrad, I'm like, God? God who? God doesn't exist. I can't, I can't get inside the headspace of someone who, is, who has deeply held religious beliefs. But the one thing that radio has, has changed in me, which is why I couldn't go back to an analytic philosophy department if I wanted to become an academic full-time again, is that it's made me appreciate the, the, the incredible and irreducible complexity of people's lived experiences that are very different to mine. And that's something that, re that radio has given me. So if you read my books, for example, they, they, I, I, I write the way I speak on radio, and I use narrative and stories much more than I did when I was a postgraduate and when I was lecturing academic philosophy. So... Am I transforming my listeners? I don't know, but I can tell you that my listeners have transformed me. Yeah, I think uh, you're right there, Eusebius. Um, I think we do get transformed by our listeners, but I'd like to think that as well that we play a bit of a role as a radio station to help transform people's lives, be it through information, ideas, differences. At the very least, I guess this is not really kumbaya stuff, but if we can at least understand different positions... Um, if not accepting them, hopefully playing a bit of a role in transformation. Through information, knowledge, power, become, become some sort of empowerment. So I'd like to think so. Cool. Uh, from a day-to-day -day sort of standpoint, uh, the way in which you guys run your, your, your radio station, actually this is a, a, a question in two parts. Um, my first question is, how often do you actually sit down and go through audio, and how often do you crit or snoop? And uh, within that context, how often do you go out and have a beer together? Okay, let me start this one, because uh, I want to pick up on something you said. We're not friends, um, and I'm not a fan, by the way. I can't be. I can't be a friend or a fan. And I think that's, um, that's, it's difficult sometimes, and I don't think program managers can be friends with talent they manage. That's something I learned quite early on. It's quite, quite difficult in a way, because you want, you want to be friends and hang out. So we're not friends. We don't hang out. Um, but I certainly have a tremendous respect for Eusebius, and maybe one day we'll be friends, Eusebius. <laughs> You'll have to fire me first. <laughs> um, how, yeah, listen, there are different schools of thoughts about what program managers some should do. Some are sort of weekly air checks, listening to 30 minutes of audio and writing down things and so on and so forth. That I find is really useful for new talent. Um, so we don't, I meet Eusebius weekly with his team, um, from time to time, we will have discussions one-on-one. -on -one. I think when the need arises, I'm not, 
I work in gray. I don't, I'm not a really believer this is the way you do it and you need 30 minutes every week on a Monday at 3.30 to listen to 30 minutes of audio. But, but that's me and I know a lot of people disagree with me. Um, I have a question for Alistair. How do you manage talent that is uncoachable and at what point, if ever, do you let them go? Hmm, interesting. Uncoachable. Um, we do, I guess, hire larger than life people, certainly on 702, big personalities. When I say big, sort euphemism. Of, euphemism. <laughs> and that, with that comes a lot of, a lot of other things. Um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess it, in the end it becomes, I'm trying to think of this. I can think of a couple of people I've worked with who are quite uncoachable. And then I guess one does a bit of a cost-benefit analysis. The way they do it on air is that bringing you in listeners and audience um, and by default advertisers, or is there someone who could do their job better through coaching? Um, but also, Alistair, tell them about your perverse pleasure in, managing in, in hiring difficult people. <laughs> Alistair once told me that the talent that, that often commercially have been the most useful in his career from a management point of view have been the ones that, that, that are often the most difficult. So it's not a perfect correlation. I mean, you should, you should speak to this. But, but, but honestly, I can't disparage colleagues of mine across the, across the industry because that would be unprofessional. But sometimes being coachable and being nice isn't necessarily the thing that makes the most business sense. Yeah. Yeah, listen, I've worked with, I guess, you know, it's, it's really odd. My hair's gray. Um, that means I've been around a while. And the sort of conversations and the reaction to Eusebius was exactly the same to John Robbie, which was another lifetime, another country away, if that makes sense. Um, and that, but he became the most, I guess, commercial of our broadcasters running the breakfast show on 702 over the years and the most com the, the one that our advertisers really liked so yeah that's not I'm not sure if that's answering your question um, in terms of coachable uh, yeah one can always work with people I think and being a, having been a producer as well I guess the challenge as well is working out which buttons to press so with Eusebius, it might not, Eusebius, do this. One might approach Eusebius in a slightly different way. Eusebius, have you thought? <laughs> and it becomes, in the end, it actually might be Eusebius's idea. And then you know you've won. Okay, our last question. Hi, guys. Um, Alistair, I think this is probably more for you. Um, what is more important when there is a call a topic that's being discussed for the presenter and their brand to come across authentically or for a safe space where a plethora of opinions are encouraged and where listeners feel safe to actually share their views <laughs> what's more important the listener or the presenters is that sort of what you're saying yeah, I guess it's a combination of, of, any, of everything. To have a soliloquy of Eusebius for an hour between 9 and 10 would be deathly boring. Um, live radio, 
sort of radio we do on 702, for me the magic is the exchange of views, the unpredictability, hearing what the callers have to say. And we know from focus groups, we know two things from focus, well, a lot of things from focus groups, but the one thing is what don't you like about talk radio? Bad callers. What do you love about talk radio? Good callers. I would, I would add to that and say, I mean, okay, for, for both contingent and other reasons, I'm on from 9 to 12. The bit that gets the most listenership is 9 to 10, which is the unscripted bit. That is not a safe space for anyone who calls in because what you have to say might be deeply disagreed with. Do people want a safe space? I don't think so. Not everything that you report that you, th that you want is necessarily what you truly want. I think what listeners want, and Alistair and I have workshopped this many times before, and what listeners are entitled to is the same thing that you are entitled to in any, in any part of, the, of, of, of space, um, and that is to be treated with dignity. Now, the mistake that many of our listeners make, and South Africans make in general, is that they think that the threshold requirement for being treated with dignity is to not be challenged when you give a viewpoint. Thank you so much, Isabes and Alistair. That was most edifying and incisive. Thank you so much. That ends the session. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.